from ABC. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, you may have heard me discuss this on the show before, but throughout the pandemic, we've been giving free access to people who are working on the front lines. That includes teachers, healthcare workers. So far, we've given free access to more than 50,000 people, people who are taking on an enormous amount of stress while they're working on behalf of the rest of us. And we've recently expanded that free coverage to people who are involved with the U.S. Postal Service. We wouldn't be able to provide this level of free access to so many people without the support of our paid app subscribers. So if that's you, I want to say thank you. And if it's not you and you're interested, let me just take a moment to encourage you. Because when you're a paid subscriber, you not only support our work and our free access campaigns, but you're also getting access to our bevy of world-class teachers, meditation courses, and coaches. So if you're interested, please go to 10percent.com slash subscribe. That is 10%, one word all spelled out, dot com slash subscribe. Go for it. Hey, guys, narcissist is a word that gets thrown out quite a bit, including by me, often semi-facetiously about myself. But until this conversation, I didn't actually know what the word meant. My guest today is Keith Campbell. He's been researching narcissism for more than 30 years. He's got a new book out called The New Science of Narcissism. And in this episode, we talk about the difference between garden variety narcissism and the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. We also talk about the difference between grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism, what to do if you're married to a narcissist, how to identify your own narcissism, and what he calls the CPR method for narcissism control. So there's a lot here. Plus, despite the heaviness of his chosen research area, Keith is a pretty funny guy. So here we go, Keith Campbell. All right, Keith, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. Pleasure. I'm a little trepidatious going into this because I feel like you're going to diagnose me as a narcissist within the first 30 seconds here, but we'll see. Oh, I don't diagnose <laughs> anyone. I'm a researcher. <laughs> I leave that to the practitioners. <laughs> That's good. Okay, cool. All right, now I can breathe. Let me just first get a sense of who you are. Why did you become interested in narcissism? Well, it's been a long time. I'm a social personality psychologist. I, you know, studied that in graduate school and there's a big interest in self-enhancement. Turns out that most people think they're better than they are. So if I go to a class and say, you know, on a 10-point scale, how attractive are you? The average person will say I'm about a 6 or 7. You know, if I say how humble are you? The average person will go, I'm about a 6 or 7 on humility. You know, I'm pretty humble. I'm not the most humble, but I'm pretty humble. I'm most people think they're a little better driver than average. So our ego inflates. It's just what it does. It's an interesting question. But when I started looking at it back in grad school, I realized some people do this more than others. So some people are actually pretty nice. Some people are truly humble. And some people are sort of arrogant and full of themselves. And, and narcissism is a tool. That trait of narcissism is a way to look at this. It's a way to understand the ego a little better than without using it. So that's partly why I got into it. I mean, for your interest, I was sort of interested in non-attachment and the non-self from a Buddhist perspective. 
And uh, I couldn't figure out how to study that at all. <laughs> and narcissism kind of gives the other way. So instead of studying, you know, lack of ego, let's just go the other way and study ego and sort of figure out how ego works. And that's sort of some of the reasons I got into it. I guess I have suspected you to give me some horror story about being, you know, raised by a horrible narcissist stepfather or something like that. Look, I struggle with ego just like everyone, but this isn't a full research is me search kind of situation. I just found it really interesting. So what is narcissism? Because the word gets thrown around a lot by me, uh, but I'm keenly aware that I don't actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah, narcissism is a word, like I said, people throw it around a lot, and usually they mean somebody who's kind of a jerk and maybe a little bit full of themselves. And that's not bad for a definition, but when we talk about it in research, it's more complicated. And really, there's sort of three definitions. The primary one and, and the one most people are talking about when they talk about narcissism is a personality trait. That means there's people who are high on the trait and low on the trait. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And it's a personality trait that is a combination of maybe a lack of empathy, maybe a sense of entitlement or some callousness to people. But at the same time, some drive and ambition and maybe charisma and charm and extroversion. So you get these interesting people who are both a little bit callous, a little bit selfish, but they're also extroverted and outgoing and agenic. And they end up being your boss at work. They end up being the person you date because you met them and they seem so confident and charming. So you end up marrying them or getting relationships with them. You watch people like this who rise into celebrity status because this is a good temperament for being a celebrity. Iron Man in those Marvel movies is a good kind of grandiose narcissist. And there's this other form of narcissism, which we talk about in the literature, but you don't see it as much in the world except in clinical settings, which is vulnerable narcissism. And this has that sense of entitlement and selfishness, just like grandiose narcissism, the same sort of core of self-centeredness or self-importance. But you're also vulnerable and a little bit easily threatened. Your self-esteem's unstable. You're a little insecure. So these vulnerable narcissists and more insecure narcissists end up becoming so depressed and anxious because they think people should appreciate how wonderful they are. People should acknowledge their genius, but they're not very outgoing. They're not very confident. So they end up depressed and they end up in therapy for depression because no one understands how great they are. So there's, you get these two faces of narcissism that you see. One is more unstable and depressed and one's more grandiose and likable and charismatic and charming. One runs the world. One is going into therapy and when these things become extreme, when you get narcissism that's extreme and inflexible, so you're kind of, a, you know, so somebody like you, you, you go on TV and you act confident and charismatic and it's great. And then you go home and you do the same thing to your kids and your kids are like, dad, I want to play. And you're like, let me tell you about my day, kid. Then it becomes a disorder. It starts to mess up your life because your narcissism is so extreme and it's so inflexible that it can become a disorder, which we call narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. So that's another way people use narcissism in the clinical term. But that's a very rare disorder. So we're talking 1% or 2% and maybe people have NPD. When we talk about it in the, in the research world, it's a little more complicated than the normal sort of use of the term. Complicated but fascinating. So it sounds like everybody's somewhere on the spectrum. Yes. And then you've got 1% or 2% that's the, in the NPD territory. But in the spectrum is interesting because as I was listening to you talk about grandiose and vulnerable narcissism, I was thinking, well, there are times in my life that I can interpolate back to from now 
where I would fit both of those descriptions. Yeah, absolutely. And they can go together. They don't correlate too much. So what that means is people who are grandiose can also be vulnerable. People who are vulnerable can be grandiose. Often you see, I'd say a condition, I don't know if that's the right word, but a a state of affairs where people will vacillate between grandiosity and vulnerability. I do this myself. So I'm going to be on this podcast. I'm going to be a legend. And then I'm like, I'm the most ugly person on earth. Look how fat I am. I hate myself. Then like, I'm going to be rich. Oh my God, everyone hates me. So you kind of vacillate between deflation and inflation. And that's something you see with both forms of narcissism. I think vulnerability a little more because it's associated with neuroticism and anxiety, which is why I do it more. But yeah, both of those poles are pretty active. So I once heard a critic of modern psychotherapy describing it as providing understanding without relief. So thus far, you've given me some understanding, but is there anything to be done about this? Um, Is it useful or in any way a relief to be able to understand where I may fit on the narcissism spectrum at any given moment or where anybody in my orbit or anybody I'm watching on TV may fit on the spectrum. Yeah, that's that's a great phrase. And that reminds me of Freud saying, you know, the goal is to turn neurotic suffering into everyday unhappiness, you know, the goal of therapy. And it doesn't sound like that great a goal, you know, just to be sad. Look, I'm a researcher. I like I like to understand things, even if it doesn't do any good. But I really do think it matters. So if I'm dealing with my own narcissism and I'm able to break down what's going on with me, I can maybe fix it better. So if my narcissism involves a sense of entitlement, if that's what really gets me into trouble, I can work on gratitude and say, God, I'm so entitled all the time. Why don't I have a little bit of gratitude for my life? Maybe that would make me a little bit happier person. If my problem is I'm really insecure, and I'm not willing to be confident, maybe I got to be more confident and sort of treat the vulnerability that way. If I take too many risks because I'm too grandiose or I'm, you know, I'm taking financial risks all the time because of my confidence and overconfidence, perhaps what I need to do is say, God, that risk taking is a little problem. Maybe I need to hire somebody to double check my risk taking, dial it in. So by understanding that how narcissism works in the pieces I think it allows you to address it in a little more sophisticated way than just saying, yeah, you're kind of full of yourself. Don't be full of yourself. So I think there's some good to it, but, you know, I'm in the business and I'm not, I don't know if I can convince anyone else. Well, you did write a whole book about uh, uh, that before this new book, The New Science of Narcissism. You did write a whole book about, you know, how to handle it if you're married to a narcissist. I wrote a book called When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself. When I started doing this work. Keep that book away from my wife. No, I, well, that's why I wrote it, because I kept going out with people. And that's what every woman would say. The guys didn't care. I was like, yeah, my wife's pretty hot. I guess she's narcissistic. I don't care. But the women would talk about it all the time. And so I wrote a book really for women. But, you know, it's a little bit outdated. But that's the reason. Yeah. So, so what are the tools that we can use? You know, if, again, we don't have to go around unless we've got a a true NPD on our hands, it might be useful to think about where our partner is on the spectrum at any given moment and what are the tools we can use to sort of provide ourselves and them with some relief. Yeah, I think that's useful to think about. I don't think going around and analyzing your partner's personality all the time is really 
once you're in it for a long time, maybe you just make it work. But I think what you're saying is you're in a marriage with somebody, you've got a relationship with somebody. It's not a clinical disorder, but narcissism's a problem. So my wife's married to me and maybe I go, look, I've got to put the kids second because my career is first. And I do this over and over and over and it starts causing problems. Or maybe I have issues with conflict. So my wife says, hey, Keith, you know, maybe you could be a little nicer. And I'm like, why are you telling me what to do? I'm doing all this work. You're always blaming me. Maybe you can be nicer. So maybe the narcissism's leading to conflict in my relationship because I'm not willing to kind of soften up and take criticism. And so I think understanding those kind of rough spots in the relationship and where the ego is getting in there and messing it up can be really important and being able to just talk about it. You know, it's just ego. And understanding it and breaking it down is is useful. I can imagine if you're dating somebody who's, or married to somebody who's pretty advanced on the spectrum of narcissism, that bringing this up would be tough. Yeah, it's very challenging. And I think one of the mistakes people make potentially is sort of globalizing it and focusing on it. So I'm going to say it's me because I don't want anyone else to feel bad. But imagine I'm the narcissist in this relationship and my wife comes home and says, you are so narcissistic, stop being so full of yourself. Well, what I'm going to do is get angry and defensive because I'm going to say, you called me a narcissist, that's mean. And you said, I'm full of myself. Well, how am I going to be less full of myself? What I'm going to be filled with? That's useless. But if you said, Keith, you're a great husband. I really appreciate how hard you work and how serious you are. But I think what would be great and would make you even more admired is to spend more time with your family. You know, that's something really great husbands do. And, you know, I'd really appreciate that. And I know the kids would appreciate that. And I think it would make you a stronger person, a better person. I bet it would even feed back and make you better at work. And I go, you know, maybe my wife's right. I could be even better. I mean, pretty good, but I could be better. And maybe that would make me better at work because I could talk about my great family at, when I do podcasts or I could talk about it when I'm trying to get clients. This would be great. And that's going to be a little better. It's going to be a little more effective because I won't get as defensive. A little manipulative, but it's a way of getting at the issues of narcissism without hitting the person directly, kind of coming to it at the side. It's interesting. So if you're dealing with a narcissist, the one way potentially to reduce the narcissism is to use a narcissistic appeal toward altruism. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's manipulation. I apologize. But we have different terms for it. Sometimes I've used the term communal activation, trying to bring up more communal feelings in your partner, trying to open up compassion, trying to open up warmth. So when I look at narcissism, I see it as having these two sides. One is about dominance or leadership or drive or ambition. And those are things in our society we kind of like. You know, we don't mind people being leaders. We encourage people to be leaders. And this other side is being selfish and self-centered and entitled and expecting more from people. And that's the side of narcissism that we see is more socially toxic. I can deal with people who think they're great if they're nice to me. But if somebody thinks they're not great and is a jerk to me, I don't like them. So when you're dealing with narcissism, I think it's, especially in relationships, it's really useful to focus on that more interpersonal piece, to try to bring about compassion, try to bring about some more affection, perspective taking, and all those sort of interpersonal skills from your partner. Speaking as somebody who's, again, been on <laughs> the, the pretty far end of the spectrum at times in my life, <laughs> maybe even literally right now. One appeal that's worked for me is that 
if you're paying attention when you're just filled with self-regard, be it grandiose or vulnerable, it doesn't feel good. Thinking about yourself, being self-centered, hurts. It feels much better to be other-focused. I've just seen over and over through my meditation practice and through my life in the world and through relationships with other human beings. And so that has provided a, a way that also works through the pleasure centers of my brain, but it doesn't feel manipulative. Part of the challenge is the science is we've spent so long trying to figure out what narcissism is and how it works that these sort of treatment things are, <laughs> we've got another decade to figure all these things out. But this idea of self-consciousness or self-awareness being unpleasant is really interesting because there is research on this where just self-awareness can be unpleasant. You're just sitting there thinking about yourself. It's boring. Even if you love yourself and think you're awesome, I think it can be rewarding. The oldest definitions of narcissism were self-love in a physical way. I mean, it was, you know, back to just real, I mean, this is 1890s kind of stuff. So I think that self-consciousness could be a turnoff eventually. If you made people, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking it through, Dan. This would be an interesting manipulation. If people come in, just reflect on yourself. Think about yourself. How do you feel? And now think about somebody else. Now think about doing something for somebody else. Think about helping somebody else. How do you feel? Most of the work, people feel better interpersonally than they do at home. I don't know if it affects narcissists more than anyone else, but I bet it would make a difference. And in fact, one of our grad students, Chelsea Sleep, just did this amazing study looking at, you know, asking people who are narcissistic what they thought. And what I used to think and what people thought in the literature were that people who are narcissistic were really kind of unaware of these interpersonal consequences of their life. But when we did these studies, it turns out that people who are narcissistic are aware of it. They say, yeah, I'm kind of antagonistic. I'm a little bit of a jerk. That causes problems. I wish I was a little less this way. So we do seem to see more self-awareness than I thought existed five years ago. Because the old model of narcissism where people are just kind of oblivious. But what it seems to be, at least in the normal range, is that people like, yeah, my, my narcissism, it, it helps me at times, but it causes me problems. I wish I could have some better relationships. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect a lot of people who, you know, have pronounced narcissistic tendencies or are on the sort of wrong side of the spectrum here, or maybe thinking, how do I keep the good parts of narcissism, the ambition, but jettison the more painful to myself and others aspects? Yes. And that challenge of being driven without being a jerk or being a leader without being entitled or... Sometimes in the leadership world, if you go into kind of the business side of it, they'll talk about it as servant leadership or level five leadership, the idea that you can be a driven leader without being an egomaniac. And this is very possible. I mean, people are like this. You look at the Dalai Lama. I mean, he's an inc one of the greatest political leaders we've ever had. He's not an egomaniac. He works at it. I think he spends hours and hours a day <laughs> to force himself or to train himself not to be an egomaniac, but he isn't. We have people who do that, and we respect people like that a lot, but it's that how do you peel away the ego from the drive? How can you be fearless without being mean? How can you be fearless without having envy? I, I, this, there's a line from a, a, one of the Clancy brothers, Liam Clancy, I, I got this in my head from an old Bob Dylan interview where he says, no fear, no envy, no meanness. But I thought that was an interesting formula for creative success, how you can do things without being mean to people. It's a challenge. 
No, I think Buddhism has a lot to say on this, you know, on how to be ambitious. And the Dalai Lama is a good example. And he meditates every morning for three hours, at least, I believe. You know, there are ways to train the mind so that you can be ambitious in that you have lofty goals, but your motivation is not self-aggrandizement, but is a benefit of other beings and that you're not attached to the outcome so that you're more resilient. Both of these things actually boost resilience because if your motivation is less self-regard and more, you know, benefiting other people, then, you know, it's easier to dust yourself off and not take things personally. And then if you're not attached to the results, you recognize, okay, and in particular in the Dalai Lama's position, he can have the view of like, uh, I can set a lofty goal and hope to achieve it over many lifetimes. Yes, you have a very uh, bodhisattva vow, right? Or bodh yes. bodhisattva yes. pledge. Yes. God, that would be a really interesting manipulation in narcissism work because it is very selfless. It's very giving and it, it also takes away the element of time because you have lifetimes to do it. So you don't have to nail it this week. You know, <laughs> I don't know, I, I'm going to save the world. I don't have a deadline so I can be a little less pressured. I love talking about the Dalai Lama, but there are other spiritual leaders who are incredibly narcissistic and they start cults and they take advantage of people. You know, spiritual materialism is a term they use for this. I've seen in some of the Buddhist literature and the Hindu literature. So it's a, it, those, those practices, I think, can be really good for relieving that stuff. But there's also, it's also a vector for narcissism. Much more of my conversation with Keith Campbell right after this. You know, having dealt with no small amount of both uh, depression and anxiety, I'll only speak to how it manifests for me, but there's a lot of narcissism in my depression and anxiety. What am I fretfully projecting forward into the future about, if not myself? Yeah, and that's the, there's this, I mean, this is like Dostoevsky, you know, I'm the, the worst man in the world and I made it all, caused all the suffering. I mean, you have to be an egomaniac to think you're that bad. You know, if I, if in my depressive thoughts, for me to be as bad a person as I imagined when I'm depressed, I'd have to be pretty arrogant because I really couldn't be that horrible. You know, I'm just kind of a normal dude. I can't be that much of a loser. So there is that ego and depression and you get an inflation of self. People who get depressed get really self-focused because you're in such suffering. It's hard for you to reach out and help somebody else, you know, because you're dealing with your own anxiety, your own fear, your own suffering. Um, so reaching out can be really hard. Sorry, I just, I, I get too weird. I started thinking about the acid test now. I don't know why. Remember the acid test from the 60s? Ken Kesey? Ken Kesey and those guys, I saw Wavy Gravy, the clown who was at the acid test. I saw him do a talk and he said, when you were in the acid test and you thought you were the lowest, you could be the most scared and depressed and you could reach out and transcend yourself to help somebody else out. That's when you pass the acid test. The thing with narcissism is ego is a big topic and ego can do a lot of things. And sometimes ego can just be distracting like monkey mind. And sometimes it can be really self-focused and fear-based and, you know, hiding in a room. And sometimes it can be this more narcissistic, look at me, I'm, you know, awesome. And so ego can take all these different forms. I, I meant to ask this early on, are we seeing societal shifts toward narcissism? And if so, what's driving it? Gene Twang and I wrote a book, uh, I think we, 08, 09, right before the crash, called The Narcissism Epidemic. And we spent a lot of time looking at narcissism, looking at young people. 
And it looked like narcissism, and this is college student data, because this is what we have data on. It looked like narcissism is trended up at least until the Great Recession, where this the average narcissism score in the country went up and up and up. And then in the recession, it looks like it sort of stabilized or started going back down. And now I think, I mean, obviously there's tons of narcissism in the US, just turn on the TV, it's not hard to find. But it seems like we're getting huge waves of depression now, or just destabilization from the coronavirus. But the data are, I mean, I'm sort of looking at data right as they come out. And it looks like this is kind of making people more depressed. I don't think the narcissism is going up with this. I'm not sure, though. I've been under the armchair analyst impression that narcissism must be going up because of social media. Yes. And it looked to me like it was until maybe 2012 or something like that. And I'm talking beyond the data right now, Dan, but I'm just going to talk. So this is me doing armchair stuff because our data, you know, in the last year or two, it's hard. The science is always fuzzy. It always takes a few years for stuff to clean out. It looks like what happened on social media is when it started, it was a vector for narcissism in part. What we know right now are people who are narcissistic use social media more. They're more accomplished at it. They have more followers or friends or whatever. Social media and narcissism go together pretty well. But then there's the question, does social media make people narcissistic? Mm. And originally I thought it would. I thought it made sense. But when we started looking at the data, it didn't really seem to. It seemed like people are narcissistic. Social media would help them maintain their narcissism. But what seemed to be going on with other kids and young people, old people, whatever, me too, is social media became very stressful for them. So if it became on Instagram, I had to do a perfect selfie. I'm doing selfies all the time. It's hard. If I don't love myself, if I'm a little insecure, my selfie doesn't look good. So I feel stressed when I send my selfies at. I get stressed when I get my feedback. And so what you saw happen was all the kids that were on Instagram, then a lot of the young kids got sort of fake Instagram accounts so people couldn't see them. And then they got Snapchat accounts so that it wasn't as permanent, so there was less pressure on them. And now they're sort of at TikTok where it's silly. I sometimes think about it this way. Our kids are more exposed than 1930s movie stars. So my daughters have probably more celebrity exposure than a movie star would in the 30s or 40s. Just have their picture taken more, they're out there more. And so they get a lot of celebrity problems. Narcissism might be a celebrity problem, but there's also depression, uh, low self-esteem, body image or body dysmorphia. So you have this big move for, like if you go into a plastic surgeon's office, there's a reasonable chance you could say, here's a perfect selfie, I want to look like this. Or there'll, you know, there'll even be a sign in there, want to make your selfie better, you know, get this procedure. So people are getting plastic surgery to take better selfies. Hmm. So it's, I think there's a cost to a lot of this that people are suffering from now. And when social media first came off, the cost wasn't apparent. And now people are seeing more of the cost. It's a guess. I just don't have the data. You were modest earlier when I asked you, you know, what can we do to deal with narcissism in our own mind and in the minds of people around us? But in, in your new book, you do have a, a section about an acronym called CPR, yeah, which you do bill as a set of tools we can use in these circumstances. I'd love to hear more about that. You know, we're talking about narcissism. Again, I don't like just attacking people's ego because you, you don't know what you're going to get. 
CPR is a way of thinking about narcissism, especially people always like, what do I do with my kids? You know, what do I do with others? It's a way of thinking about it that's not directly an ego attack. And it's easy to remember. So C, compassion. Compassion or interpersonal relationships or love or affection or whatever you want, caring, concern, and all those, those interpersonal warmth, that is a buffer against narcissism. The more love you have in your life, the less narcissistic you're going to be. The more compassionate you are, the less narcissistic you're going to be. So building that compassion in is really an important way to, to sort of stop from becoming an unhinged narcissist because you care about people. The second one is one people don't think about very much, but I think it's important, especially when you're in a performance fields, creative fields, sports, any of these, any of the fields, it's passion. So when people do things out of passion, out of love or what they're doing, so I mean, surfing or yoga or meditation or doing podcasting or being a professor when they're passionate about their subject, they can be energized and they can draw people in charismatically, but they're not ego involved because they just love what they're doing. It's not about them. So in the psychology literature, we have this term called flow or flow states that people get into sometimes in sports. They talk about it like being in the zone when you're so engaged in what you're doing and you're performing at such a high level that you literally lose consciousness of yourself. You sort of lose awareness of yourself. You're so immersed in what you're doing. And so I think that if you focus your life on passion, your ego isn't going to be as strong. It's going to be buffered because you just love what you're doing. And the third thing is the R in CPR is responsibility taking. One of the biggest challenges with narcissism is taking responsibility for failure or taking responsibility for mistakes or bad outcomes. People who are narcissistic are very good at taking credit for success. They're not so good at taking credit for failure. And so I think it's a real practice just to say, yeah, I'm responsible for this screw up. Even if you're not responsible, even if your employee is responsible for the screw up, it's better to say, yeah, I'm responsible for that screw up. So if you practice this over time, what you find is, first of all, you get better because you take responsibility for mistakes. So you don't make them as much. Secondly, people don't hate you for taking responsibility for failure. They kind of respect you. They go, yeah, Keith's not perfect, but he's not a jerk. At least he takes responsibility. I don't have to. So that responsibility piece, I think, is a pretty good buffer for narcissism. Would you describe CPR as primarily a set of tools that one can use to shave down one's own narcissism? Or is there an aspect to it that you can use with a difficult boss or spouse, et cetera? I came up with that idea because I had so many parents going, I don't want my kid to be narcissistic. <laughs> and so I, I try to come up with an acronym really you know, how to deal with kids. But I use it for myself, just like run that through my head sometimes. With a boss, it's much harder because with yourself or your kids, you have some control when you're dealing with a boss. A lot of it is how do you protect yourself? How do you make sure that my boss can't take advantage of me? And then it becomes a balance of protection, but also some manipulation. So you know, if I have an arrogant boss, I figure, well, the guy wants to have an ego. The woman wants to have an ego. How do I help her ego needs be met in a way that benefits my career and doesn't cost me my job? Right. So back to the manipulation. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't use manipulation <laughs> in the pejorative. I mean, if you don't have as much power, manipulation is the jujitsu move, right? Um, but if you you have power agency when it comes to your own personality, and hopefully, especially when they're younger, your own children. And so 
what I hear you talking about CPR as it pertains to children, I've got a five-year-old. I very much do not want him to be a narcissist, even though he has my genes. <laughs> so I would be encouraging under your schema for him to have things in his life that develop skills like compassion, passion, and responsibility. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I think is really good with kids is natural consequences, meaning the classic example is you burn your hand on the stove, you don't grab stoves anymore. But a lot of nature does that. So you're out, you know, rock climbing or surfing or doing anything out in nature and you get hurt and you can't blame anyone but yourself. You know, you're out kayaking on a river and you get knocked underwater. You can't blame anyone. You just have to accept responsibility for what happens. So I think those natural consequences over and over, it just helps you establish a self that's not interpersonal in a way. It allows you to know what you're good at, what you're not good at. If you meet people who do high-risk sports, you know, big wave surfers or fighters or whatever, they're pretty usually pretty chill people. <laughs> They've gotten beat down so many times. Their ego isn't what it was when they were 15, you know? Let me ask you about passion, because I have a lot of things that I'm passionate about, but you use the phrase, you can get so passionate about it, but you can get into a flow state where your ego isn't involved. But, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about my writing books and doing podcasts. And yet, like, do I check my Amazon rank pretty regularly? Yes. Do I uh, check well, how my, this podcast is ranking in the Apple store all the time? That's pretty prominent ego involvement. Well, it's ego involvement, but it depends how you're framing your task. So if your task is you say, look, I just love to write. I don't care. Once it leaves my desk, I don't care. I just love to put words on paper. And then you said, and I'm checking my stuff all the time. I'd say, Dan, maybe there's something going on. But if you said, I'm really passionate about being a successful writer, well, how do you score points as a successful writer? You get sales ranks or you get, you know, comments or whatever. So you're basically looking at the points on the board. So looking at the points of the board is going to give you feedback for good or bad. And if your numbers are bad, you know, you're, you're getting bad data from it and you go, I better readjust or, or maybe you just blame your publicist and, and get, <laughs> go off the handle, <laughs> fire your publicist. <laughs> Sorry, should joke. My publicist, Beth, is the nicest person in the world. Namaste, Beth. Um, <laughs> but you could see that, right? Your numbers are down. You go off the handle. You fire everyone. And you go, okay, Dan's awesome or Keith's awesome, but everyone around Keith is an idiot. Let's get a new team around Keith so Keith can be awesome again. But if you're looking at the numbers going, you know, I got to work on this or, you know, it's really working over here, but it's not working over here. I'm going to change my direction a little bit. That's feedback for performance. So it's not really ego. It's more performance-based. Well, what it gets me thinking, and maybe this is totally off base, is that is it possible there's a kind of healthy or useful narcissism in that, yes, I do look at the metrics, and yes, I do feel there's at least some ego involvement there, but I am using it as a way, I hoped, to get better at my job so that I serve people better. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be honest here. Is that my only motivation. I'll say it's at least one outcome that I do serve people better. And so maybe I'm putting lipstick on a pig here, but is that maybe useful <laughs> ego? Well, well, yes, I think it's useful ego. I mean, you, I mean, you got to have an ego. <laughs> you got to get out of bed in the morning, you know, and if you're going to be successful and you're going to say, I'm going to put stuff out there that I want people to pay attention to, you got to have some of an ego to start with. I mean, to make it work, the problem is you just don't want it taking you over. 
So if you have an ego and you can use your ego, but it's not taking you over, it's not destroying your relationships, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I mean, it's a tool. Think about ego as a tool in your toolbox, but you can pull it out of your toolbox and use it. But then you can put it away and go home to your wife and kid or whatever. You can go to the park and look at the birds and feel joy, (laughs) not have to be living in your head all the time. So that tool in the toolbox metaphor is one I've used, and it makes sense to me. Also, I mean, no one's perfect. I'm not the Dalai Lama. My God, that guy meditates. He was reincarnated, what, 13 times, and he meditates four hours a day. I mean, I get out of bed, have a cup of coffee, get yelled at by my kids, and my dog bark at me. I'm just glad to be awake, you know? So, I mean... But what you're pointing at, to me at least, seems really deep. That, again, it's, it, I think s- thinking about it as a spectrum is really useful. And we're going to be at various points on the spectrum, given our conditioning and given the current conditions in our lives. But what I hear you doing is kind of decriminalizing the ego here. We need to have ego. We need to, as you said, get up in the morning, put our pants on make appointments. And it's not wrong to want to be successful, but you might want to have ways to be able to turn the volume up or down on the ego or to put it back in the toolkit and pull out a different tool, whatever. Pick your metaphor. I think motivation is a key part here. What is your motivation for your success, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like we're getting into really complex but deeply useful terrain here. I agree. I'm not anti-ego by any means. I just think it can be overwhelming. I like competition. I think competition is a great way to learn about yourself. It's a great way to kind of lose your ego because you get your butt kicked. It's a great way to gain confidence in what you do. It's a very egotistical thing. But if it's balanced, fair competition, it's great. That's why we have sportsmanship, though. So you don't, you know, you don't go sabotage your competitor after the competition. We learn how to have ego and then put it away, and we, we learn how to deal with it reasonably well. Being selfless all the time. I mean, if you just woke up and started giving away all your stuff, I mean, your family's going to starve. It's not perfect. I mean, we're human. We're not, you know, we're not gods. I very much look at this as a balance and trying to make things better or worse rather than getting rid of ego somehow. I mean, you can do it for moments and intense experiences, but it doesn't last long. I have a few more questions. This is this is fascinating. The book is called The New Science of Narcissism. That's the new book. What do you mean by new science? What's new here? Well, the research and theory on narcissism has been a mess for a long time. The term's been around for about 100 years. And it got real messy because just historically you had... You know, you had psychoanalysts looking at people and saying, well, these people are really arrogant, but deep down inside, they hate themselves. So, you know, Donald Trump is underneath Woody Allen and Woody Allen underneath must be Donald Trump. And it gets all confusing. And we had these very strange models and different people calling different things narcissism. The definitions were really messed up. And in the last 10 years or so, there's been a wide agreement of sort of how we can structure narcissism, talk about as a personality trait, isn't a disorder. And really what it meant is the personality psychologists, the social psychologists, the industrial organizational business psychologists, and the psychiatrists and clinical people all got together and sort of agreed on what we're talking about. 
And the field was able to move forward very quickly in about 10 years. So that's really what, I mean, a lot of the reason I write the book is I just want to get this stuff out there so that if somebody wants to come along in five years and pick it up, they can just start where I am and not have to start from scratch. The epilogue in your book is, well, the title of the chapter is Epilogue, but the subtitle is Facing the Future with Hope. What is hopeful here? I I just try to be hopeful now. I used to be so (laughs) cynical, but it just wasn't working for me. No, I'm I'm hopeful in a lot of things. I think, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd say there's not really a treatment for MPD. People don't change too much. And it, it seems like people can change. It seems like people are flexible in their personalities more than we thought before. It seems like we can understand personality so we can see that some things are strengths and weaknesses and we kind of balance those out. So I think there's hope. The challenge clinically is that there's no real good research on narcissistic personality disorder. It's just not a priority of the government to fund research on this. So we don't really have, I I mean, I wish I could say, you know what, we've got five therapies. They've been tested in these, you know, these clinical trials. Easy. Call this guy. We can fix your narcissism. We just don't have that because there's no research on it. I mean, there's some, but there's no big money push for it. There's just not a federal interest in narcissism. (laughs) So many jokes to be made there. (laughs) (laughs) It just really isn't. I hate to say it, but I mean, that's literally the case. There's not a federal interest in narcissism. That's a very interesting sentence. I could get fired for playing with it too much, but let, let's... <laughs> no, I, I won't, but I, I, I mean, I'll put it, let me put it in terms that this is actually a little spookier, but this is kind of what happens is our National Institute of Health thinks about mental disorders as being things that are first found in cells and then found in neurons and then things you can find in rat models or rodent models and then things you find in the brain. So it's a very materialistic view of the psyche. And so things like narcissism that don't really clearly fit into a rat model or a mouse model, they just don't know what to do with it because it's a problem of ego and we don't really have good models with animals. We don't have good medicines for it. And our whole system is designed to make every mental problem a pill. Mm. And so there's not a lot of funding for things that don't fall along those lines. How do you clinically, and I know you're not a clinician, but how does one clinically delineate between somebody who is, you know, pretty far to the extreme on the narcissism spectrum and somebody who's full-on NPD, narcissistic personality disorder? The distinction is impairment. So we'd say, is there clinically significant impairment in your life from your narcissism? To be a disorder, it has to be messing you up. And so what they have to do is localize a couple areas where this disorder is making your life harder. So it could be interpersonal problems. That's a big one for narcissism. So yeah, you've got this narcissism and it's wrecking your marriage or your work. That's a problem. Could be a cognitive distortion. Oh, you know, you're making terrible decisions because your confidence is way too high. So it's distorting your decision-making. It could be emotional disruption. So your narcissism makes you have these aggressive outbursts whenever you feel threatened. And we need to work on that clinically because you lost your job and you can't, you know, you ran up on stage when someone got an award and stole the award from them. And that's terrible. You know, you know, whatever it is, you kind of have to have this impairment to be a disorder. If you're just the most arrogant person on the earth, but you're a nice person, you're not getting a disorder. 
I mean, a Dalai Lama comes in and says, yeah, I'm, I'm a reincarnated Lama. And yeah, that's kind of how I roll. God King. He's not going to be diagnosed as, as NPD because he, it's not impairing. Hmm. So it's that impairment piece that makes it a clinical disorder and not just a trait. Yeah, I guess impairment, though, there's some elasticity in that phrase in that. There is so much elasticity. Right. And the, the, the truth is, if you walked into a psychiatrist and said, my life's messed up because my wife says I'm kind of a narcissist, guy's probably going to diagnose you as narcissistic. Right. Because you walked in there. Right. This has been a great chat. Having written numerous books on the subject, are there areas where I should have steered the conversation but failed to, or the things you want to get off your chest that I haven't given you a chance to? <laughs> no, this is really interesting. The thing with ego is that it affects every single avenue of life. So you could say, Keith, what about narcissism in sports? What about narcissism in geeks? What about narcissism in the military? What about narcissism in religion? I mean, you can go anywhere with it. It's the nature of the ego. It goes in everything. So, no, this is fun. So final, final question here. We do, on some episodes, we do this thing called the plug zone where we, we force our often modest guests to shamelessly plug. So can you just plug your new book, your old books, where you are on the interwebs, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, thank you. We have a new book coming out uh, September 28th called The New Science of Narcissism, available from all your local bookstores. Internet, we put up a site called Narcissism Lab that has some narcissism tests on there that should be working if you're curious, and uh, wkeithgamble.com. A pleasure to meet you and to chat with you, Keith. Thank you so much. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Big thanks to Keith. Before we go, heads up. On Thursday, October 1st, from 7 to 9 Eastern p.m., uh, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and Seven A Selassie and I will be doing a live event. It's a live stream event. It's a benefit to support uh, two great meditation centers, the New York Insight Meditation Center, that's obviously in New York, and the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Cambridge, Mass. For more information and uh, to register, you can go to nyimc.org and search under events to make it easy for you. We'll also put a link in the show notes. And finally, big thanks to the folks who work so hard to make this show a reality. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wirtel is our production coordinator. We derive a lot of wisdom from our TPH colleagues, such as uh, Jen Poyant, Ben Rubin, Nate Toby, and Liz Levin. And as always, big thanks to Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan from ABC News. We'll see you all on Wednesday for an episode about joy. Is that even a relevant emotion these days? An episode about joy with the great meditation teacher, James Barris, on Wednesday.